Hello everyone, welcome to our podcast, Stained Glass Stories. We have just finished up with the story of Cain and Abel, so we're going to shift gears. And we're going to navigate some of these curiosities, questions maybe, that we touched on during our retelling, as well as explore how this narrative applies to our lives today. My name is Josh Green. And my name is David Dominguez. Let's get started. Quick recap to shape our minds around this story. Adam and Eve have been cast out of the garden, but they are obeying God's command in chapter 2, and they're being fruitful, and they're multiplying. They have a son, Cain, and then another son, Abel, and we mentioned that they are most likely twins. Well, these twin baby boys, they grow up into men. Twin men. And they both we're told, present offerings to worship God. The problem is Cain's offerings, mm, not the best. Mm. Abel's, however, is the best, which Cain doesn't really like, and he becomes jealous. So God warns him, you better put a check on that sinful spirit or sin will have its way with you. Cain, however, ignores God and proceeds to bait Abel into an open field where he then kills him. Unfortunately, he wasn't able to see that one coming. But um, thank you. You're welcome. So our omniscient God calls out to Cain and he asks him, "Where's your brother?" Of course, Cain deflects and he says, "What am I, my my brother's keeper or something?" God, of course, knows that he's avoiding the obvious truth. So God responds, "What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground." Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. So when you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you, but you will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain, having just killed someone, has the audacity to tell God that this punishment is just too great. And so God actually shows mercy to Cain and protects him by using a mark or sign that represents the sevenfold judgment that will be upon the person who kills Cain. Mm. So Cain travels east into the land of Nod. We then begin to read of the lineages following Cain. And we also read that he builds a city and he names it Enoch after his first son. Lastly, we read that Adam and Eve have another son and they name him Seth. Now, some pretty important people come from the line of Seth. Mm, but you'll have to tune into the next episode to learn more about that. All right, the recap is done. Let's reflect. Okay, so when we introduced this, one of the things that we talked about was the fact that Adam and Eve had relations. But in Hebrew, it's actually the word new. So Adam knew Eve, right? But interestingly enough, this word in the Hebrew, yada, new, uh, it tends to be used a lot in the Old Testament, referring not just to a sexual relationship, but also a deep emotional relationship. Yeah. 
And and I think that's going to be worth highlighting and like just thinking through both in this story and in what we will see continue um, because we're going to see that term continue to be used. And so I think broadening our understanding of it will be helpful. Right. I know right now I'm like reading through the prophets and specifically in Hosea, like the biggest charge that he brings against the people is that they don't know no God. God yeah. Right. And it's like, obviously he's not saying that they haven't had sexual relations with God. He's obviously not saying that they don't know like knowledge wise who God is. Um, and so I, th- I think just laying this groundwork will be helpful as we continue to go through these stories in the old Testament to help yeah. us understand that this is a much broader term encompassing more than just maybe what our definition of just no oftentimes is. Right. Yeah. Con- context is obviously key. Yes. As we'll learn. So as we move on, we read that Eve states that she has gotten a man child, uh, which is you know just a baby boy from the Lord or sometimes translated as with the Lord. And then the ESV actually translates it as with the help of mm. the Lord. But if we look at the original Hebrew, the Hebrew explicitly states, I have gotten a man child, the Lord. Now, contextually, the other translations we typically see could still be valid, but if we're looking just at the explicit text, it's kind of a strange string of words, right? Mm -hmm. I have gotten a man child, the Lord. So is Eve stating that her man child is the Lord? Yeah. Or is she saying that with the Lord, she has produced this baby? Like Adam's out of the picture. Yeah, I've I've seen some people reference it that way, like, oh, she was still hurt over, you know, there's still some tension there between her and Adam for sure. But yeah, what else could it? Yeah, so this typically leads readers to interpret this as Eve understands this offspring, this baby boy, is actually the Messiah Hmm. who will deliver Adam and Eve from the judgment pronounced of them in chapter 3. So if we take a look back, right, we remember that the Lord told the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, right? Cain is her seed. So he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. So we understand from this sentence that Eve's seed or offspring will crush the head of the serpent. Wow. So immediately we see, right, this longing for a Messiah, right at the beginning of our reading through scripture. So someone to deliver them right from their sin. But in Eve's mind, this promise has already occurred. Great. Here's the first offspring to come from her womb. And she understands this to mean that she will be saved. Well, as we covered in the previous episode, that's definitely not the case. In fact, pretty much the opposite. (laughs) So if it's not Cain, maybe it's Abel? Mm. Mm. Can't be able. Oh, no, I guess it can't be able. Yeah, we spoiled that already. Yeah, because, you know, he dies. Cain obviously kills him out of jealousy of the Lord's favor because of the offerings that they each gave. But Abel, because of his death and the spilling of innocent blood, he does, in fact, allude to the Messiah. But we'll talk about that in a little bit. Yeah. So that's definitely a big, big trend that we're going to circle back to mm-hmm. at, at towards the end. Something that I found really interesting and I, I thought it was worth sharing was an alternative translation to 
Genesis 4, 7. Mm. Okay, so I'm going to read that first to kind of get us into understanding why right. this is even piqued my interest because if you've read Genesis 4 7 you've probably left with more questions than answers like me it says this is God speaking back to Cain he says if you do well will you not be accepted and if you do not do well sin is crouching at the door Mm -hmm. its desire is contrary to you but you must rule over it Mm -hmm. okay so Kind of an interesting verse, kind of difficult to decipher exactly what it means. It seems like a warning from God to Cain. But what I found really interesting is this gentleman by the name of Michael Morales, who's an Old Testament scholar, wrote an article basically depicting an alternative translation for this verse. And he bases that off the fact that the word they're used and translated as sin Okay, so the word is hatat. This word can be translated as sin or sin offering, purely based on context. Okay. Okay, so he's saying this word could be translated as sin or as sin offering. In the, in the passage I just read, it's translated as sin. And now the reason that he brings up this alternative translation is because there is an issue with the verse grammatically. So in Hebrew, just like in other languages, the gender of the noun and the verbs that are paired has to match. Right. Right. So like if the noun is feminine, the verb must also be feminine. They match. We don't have that in English, obviously, but Spanish. You see it all in Spanish. Yeah. And so in the Hebrew language, it's, it is this way. Now, the issues that arise in the passage is that in the in this normal translation, the crouching, which is the verb in the sentence, is actually masculine, while the noun, which is the word for sin, which is hatat, is female. Or feminine. It's yeah. feminine, right? So there is there's a rule, a grammatical rule being broken yeah. here. Okay. Interesting. Very interesting, right? And so his change would be to translate instead of sin, translate hatat as sin offering, which is an, another alternative translation of the same word. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you might ask yourself, what, yeah, what does that do for isn't us? Isn't sin offering still a feminine noun? The answer is yes, but it can refer or it can be linked to masculine verbs or pronouns when the sin offering it is referring to is a male animal. Okay. Okay. So for example, in Exodus 29, 14, we get a prime example of this. So chapter 29, verse 14 says, but the flesh of the bull and its skin and its dung shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. Okay. So, Right there in that verse, the word for sin offering, we see it pop up again. It's the same word hatat that we see in 4.7. So in 4.7, it's translated as sin. Here is a sin offering. They're using context to make that translation, okay? Here, it is connected to the pronoun who. It's who hatat, which is masculine. But Morales makes the point that that makes sense because it is referring, the sin offering is referring to what? 
the bull. Right. We all know a bull is a male. So the violation of this rule is satisfied because the object is male. Correct. He, I mean, case. he would say it's warranted, right? Like it would make sense to us because we'd be like, we know a bull is is masculine. So it would make sense that the pronoun used to describe that sin offering would also be masculine. Okay. Okay. So he uses this to to kind of strengthen his case for why um, he he is vying for this change in translation in, right. in, in Substituting sin with sin offering. Correct. It actually makes sense, more sense at least, grammatically. Correct. And so his rendering would be this. If you do not do well, at the door, a sin offering is lying down. That's like his proposed right. translation. It would solve the grammatical issues while still giving us a sentence that surely you can still make sense of. Okay? Okay, I'm with you. And this is referring to the promise of grace in response to human sin, right? We're, we're clear up to there, right? Yeah. All right. So, but he continues because the verse also says it's crouching down or lying down at the door, Okay. And so he gets into some interesting things that we already kind of explored during the last episode, which is this possibility that this door is referring to the entrance of Eden, okay, which could have technically been the place where Cain and Abel presented were, their offerings and worship, right? Correct. We, we talked about that in the previous episode. And so this, he suggests, seems plausible in light of later legislation, which commands that the people of Israel bring their offerings to the door or petah, which is the same word used here in verse 7, of the tabernacle. So now you start to see how this translation also maybe has some value in that it would really make sense to the Jewish people because they Mm -hmm. would read, oh, sin offering, crouching at the door. As it does. As it as it does in our Levitical right. sacrificial system, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the gist of his neat proposal, right? And I think the 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 rest of the verse is where kind of more questions arise, right? Because the verse doesn't end there. Morales interprets the rest of the verse to be referencing basically only the other person in the narrative, which is Abel, right? Whose desire then would be contrary to Cain's and whom Cain would have to rule over. Yeah. So what is, what is the original translation again for that that second part? So the original translation for Genesis 4, 7 is this for the second part. It's desire is contrary to you. Mm-hmm. but you must rule over it. Right. So that couldn't be in reference to the sin offering. No, it is now, it has to be referencing somebody else. And it, it mimics the language that we see between Adam and Eve when it, when it speaks to in, in Genesis 3.16, where it says that the woman's desire will be for the man, right? We, we talked about that in, in a previous episode. Um, and what he... The, the reason that he makes this case that this second half of the verse still makes sense is because much like the reference of the woman, it is future-oriented, but it is very general, okay? And he says this could be just any sort of tension 
that was evident in both the relationship between Adam and Eve and that it could have very much been present between twin brothers. Sure. Right? Like we see that pattern laid out later in scripture of this tension between one brother desiring or or seeking to usurp the other. So in in his view, this second part of the verse is is just naturally seen as a contrast between Cain and Abel. Right. He he takes it and makes it an inferred reference to Abel instead of having to explain it as sin. Right. Because you know, obviously in the original sin is crouching at the, st- at the door and its desire is for you. Correct. Its desire is to rule over you, but you must rule over it. But you, there's no ruling over a sin offering. That doesn't make any sense. So he, he takes them as almost two separate phrases in general. Yes. One is is understanding grace. That Like, why are you mad? Cain, like, you, there, is there not an offering waiting at the door mm-hmm. for you to sacrifice? Right. You know, go and participate in this grace. And then a secondary line of establishing this relationship of brotherhood, this theme that we will see mm-hmm. of a contrary nature to each other. Right. Yeah. The younger desiring to rule over the older. Correct. Interesting. Which, yeah. Which we'll definitely, I, we'll definitely address more. Spoiler alert in our Jacob and Esau episode. Right. Or even Joseph. Or even Joseph. Yeah. G- great point. And so kind of kind of transitioning from that, there are issues with this translation. I'm not saying, I'm not bringing it up because I said, oh, I ran into this article and I said, oh my gosh, all my an- questions are answered and this is so interesting. There's still definitely issues with, with both translations, but I think it, it's it's worth kind of peeling back some of the work that we do and look into because I think a lot of people probably find this stuff interesting as well, even if it's just for the desire of like learning more about scripture and how the process of translation and all of that. I found that very interesting. The biggest takeaways that I want to bring forth with this is is twofold. One, translating is incredibly difficult. Yeah. Okay. And so we should be thankful that people dedicate their lives and a lot of time to immerse themselves into languages and giving us the best that they can do in terms of translation to make scripture accessible to us. Yeah, absolutely. And two is the fact that there are passages in scripture that are not just difficult to translate, but are difficult to interpret, right? And so what we should do as a practice is use clear passages in Scripture to help us make sense of the passages where we're not super clear. Mm. And so I'm going to use Genesis 4-7 as our example, right? Let's say we use the first translation, which basically tells us, hey, your relationship with sin is a hostile one. You have to take it seriously or it's going to take you down. Right. I don't need Genesis 4-7 to make that, to make the case that Scripture tells us that and that we should take sin seriously. I have so many stories and passages, both in the Old and New Testament, to make that case, right? In the same way, I don't need this alternate translation of Genesis 4-7 to know that God is a gracious and merciful God and that where there is sin, grace can abound and that we can have forgiveness uh, of our sins, right? Both within the Old Testament and within the New Testament. So clearly... Either one of these translations would not be pushing us to to make an assumption that is 
going completely against what the rest of Scripture is right. teaching the- us. Theoretically, both are compatible. Correct. And so what it should allow us to do is kind of like fall in love with Scripture and studying it and realizing, wow, there's so much depth that can be taken out from even just a simple verse like this. Um, so that's kind of like my my two cents on that. But I thought it was really interesting. If you are intrigued and want to read his, like the whole basically article that he presents, it is by by Michael Morales. I, I can find the the name of the specific article it is called crouching demon hidden lamb resurrecting an exegetical fossil in genesis 4 7 wow that is a name and it is free so we'll put it in the show notes in case you sure. wanna, if you want to check it out okay so we've kind of dove into some smaller themes and mm-hmm. minutiae that that are potentially problem areas or question marks that we typically come across when we read this story But we also want to take a step back and look at some of the big picture themes that we've already touched on, but really permeate throughout the rest of scripture, right? And so obviously one of the themes, and this one's a little bit, this one's a smaller theme, but it's obviously evident as we touched on earlier is this idea of younger brother superseding an older brother, Mm -hmm. such as with Jacob and Esau. That, that pattern continually arises and establishes itself throughout Scripture. And it starts here, right, in this story. Yeah, it will not be the last time yeah. we we see that dynamic. Um, and I think it is, to your point, kind of interesting to start to see these patterns because they, they tend to help us understand and kind of tie in what a story is trying to tell, especially within the Old Testament right. when when we realize these people aren't reading or learning these stories in a vacuum, this is their cultural story, which is why like even the things that we just said, like, okay, yeah, to a Jewish person, this idea of a sin offering crouching at the, or laying down at the door would just make sense. They, now when we, when we go to the story of Jacob and Esau or Joseph, we can already see where they're probably like, oh yeah, we know what happened with Cain and Abel. Mm, Yeah, truly. I mean, we're going to, as we continue to explore Genesis is going to set precedence for the rest of scripture. And mm-hmm. so it's really important to look at it through that lens as like the reason why the story is told at all is to tell a bigger theme, to tell yes. a bigger message. So that's why sometimes in these stories, like the, the details are so obscure mm-hmm. and there's just not a whole lot of information there. And we kind of wonder like, wow, that's, random almost Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. just thrown in there this whole story of Cain and Abel especially because as we look at Cain's line doesn't contribute to the Messiah or anything like that it and obviously neither does Abel because he dies but Seth's does so why does this story get included and I think we're beginning to see why right yeah that's that's a really good really good point another big thing and and this is big big picture because we see Cain and Abel repeatedly referenced in the New Testament. Yeah. Abel in a much more favorable light. Yeah, they're than, contrasted to each other. Than certainly. Cain. But I, I do think it's it's worth kind of like reading a few of the passages and just kind of like discussing that a little bit. Specifically, Abel. So Abel is used as a symbol for the spilling of innocent blood, right? 
Matthew 23 and Luke 11 are examples of this. When when Jesus rebukes the Pharisees and states that they will be responsible for the killing of innocent prophets who declare Jesus as Lord. Mm. So he's kind of talked of or referenced in terms of the righteous dead, right? right. Like people who who they're righteous, not their death is righteous. Yeah, this th- those those uh, two passages are referring to the same thing. Was that the eight woes, right, to the Pharisees? Cain, however, his references are not are not as great as <laughs> no Abel's. Right, he's he's seen as a symbol of evil, evil for sure, evil and, and wrongdoing. Yeah, yeah, not yeah. good. So if you if you, for example, if you look at First John three, verses eleven through twelve, he says that. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, mm-hmm. who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. And then furthermore, in Jude chapter 1, verse 11, Woe to them, for they, they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed a headlong into the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. So if we remember, Balaam was the prophet that rejected God, rejected his call towards him. That's the mm. one with the talking donkey. Yep. And then Korah, the 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 group of people that, you know, betrays the nation of Israel. They're, they're Israelites, but they, they betray kind of God's command and they're literally swallowed up by the ground. So yeah, you don't want to be compared judgment. to them. No. Certainly not. So additionally, you get this idea of good and evil portrayed yes. through Abel and Cain. But furthermore, Abel is a foreshadowing or a type of Christ. Right? Mm-hmm. We hinted at this already, but another thing that I found interesting as I studied the story and looked where Cain and Abel were referenced in the Bible was the innocent or righteous death of Abel foreshadowing the righteous death of Christ. Right? So let's read a few passages in the New Testament that make this reference, right? Because we're not making it up. Right. So looking at Genesis 4.10, it obviously says, And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. So if you look at Hebrews 12.24, it cross-references this, and it says, And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Mm. So Christ is the better Abel. Yes. Right? As you've talked about, he's kind of, he's the antitype. He is the fulfillment. Mm-hmm. He is the ultimate. Right? So, again, right, we read that Abel, the first martyr of faith, right, the innocent righteousness, is a foreshadowing of our Lord Jesus whose blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And so if we're if we're looking at these themes kind of portrayed in, in Romans 7.24 and 1 John 1, 1.9, we, we see this idea that Abel's innocent blood cried out for justice against sin, whereas Jesus' innocent blood cries out for mercy for sinners. Mm-hmm. Right? Subtle difference there, but so powerful when we begin to reflect on, on what Jesus did on the cross and how significant his blood was. Mm. So Jesus's blood, it covers our wretchedness and cleanses us from all sin. And and I would even say in 
meets and answers that call of righteousness yeah. too, which is to your point, just this full, just perfect completion. Yeah. Jesus's blood poured out, accomplished something that no sacrifice could have ever done before. No sacrifice of a righteous person like Abel's sacrifice does not accomplish this. It does not cover sin, right? And the same with the blood offerings that we see in the Old Testament. It's not a true covering of sin. It's just a representation before the Lord to cleanse oneself. But Jesus and his blood truly covers wretchedness and cleanses us from all sin eternally, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So really, really wanted to highlight that. I think that's the most important thing that we can take away from this passage is already and we saw it in Eve. We yep. want we need a Messiah. Yep. We need someone to deliver us from evil, from the serpent. And we're going to continue to see this cosmic clash throughout scripture of the forces of good and the forces of evil battling against each other. And humanity constantly succumbing to evil and recognizing their need for a savior. Like we cannot save ourselves. We do not have the capacity and we're in desperate need of someone to come and to save us. Mm -hmm. But the only way that that it can be done is through the shedding of blood. Yeah. So Jesus knew this coming into his ministry, and he accepted that and glorified God in the process. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think that is such a timely, timely word. One, in just calling us to how we ought to approach Scripture, and it's yes. realizing that it's, it's such a, grander scheme than if right. we just take one verse and like hyper focus on that, but realizing that it's, it's pointing to a, a much larger narrative. Um, but even that, that, that you're referring to like this realization that Jesus is just the, the better able, right. Is it's our, it's our better sin offering, right. It, it's just, it helps us understand how, like what this story tells us about how God interacts and relates oh, yeah. with us, right? Like, yeah. His his dealings with Cain, who to your point, you read the story and you're like, why is Cain not just struck down instantly? He just killed his brother. Yeah. God know God knows this. Justice. But we just continue to see this pattern of repetitive op opportunities of grace for Cain. And frankly, like if you if you read that as a believer and it doesn't it doesn't give you hope. And realization like, wow, I, I have that same opportunity. Yeah, a loving you know, God who's gracious to that, you. That question is still for you today. Like, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? Like, God's not telling him like, hey, you have to have been perfect, fixed everything after. Like, he already rejected yeah. Cain's initial offering. Like, there's no going back there. And I, I pray that's a comfort to people yes. as well because I think often we as people become so consumed in the shame and the guilt of our sin. Cain literally committed murder against his own brother and God immediately extends grace to him. Yeah. Which is just something to truly reflect on and just kind of abide in and think about the fact that not even murder of one's own brother is too great of a sin for God to extend his mercy, to extend his grace towards his children. And we saw that again, of course, with, and we mentioned this with Adam and Eve. He does the same thing, mm -hmm. right? He covers them literally with a sin offering. He kills an animal and covers them with its skin, even though they had been in direct disobedience to his command. 
He couldn't have made it any simpler for them. Right. And yet he's still gracious. He's still faithful, even when we're not. That is some good news. That's the good news, man. Mm-hmm. That's the gospel. So with that being said, I think we really just want to reiterate how important it is to view scripture from this lens that it's pointing. Like when I envision us reading through these stories, I'm thinking we're having all these individual stories. And then there's just Jesus at the center of it all. And all these stories, you just take a little arrow and you draw it and you point it to Jesus. Yeah. And you make those connections. How, how is this pointing to Jesus? And I promise it is. There's a very specific reason why so, so many historical events occurred within that time period that don't make it into scripture, right? But we're, we're, we're given specific stories, specific times with specific people to really communicate this big idea that we as a human race are incompetent and we're incapable of saving ourselves. Yeah. And the Bible just reiterates that over and over and over again and establishes our need for a Messiah. And we, if we read these stories in a vacuum and without this greater narrative mm-hmm. in, in mind, we, we, we really can fall into this statement that Jesus says to, to the rulers of his, or, or the teachers of his day. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. Mm. Jesus is telling us, listen, the scriptures are there for a reason. Yeah, They are very useful. You should study them and learn from them because ultimately they will lead you to one place. And that's me. That's a great word. Yeah, so with that being said, I think that pretty much concludes our reflection. I think so. There's so much more to talk about, but that's really going to start coming up in the future stories. Yeah. So we're going to leave it for then. So with that being said, we thank you for joining us. It's been very exciting to go through this story. It's a short one, but it's action-packed and some some deep, deeply rooted themes. So we thank, as always, Charles for music, Victor Paisley for mixing and editing, the true heroes of this podcast. <laughs> thank you guys, and we look forward to hearing and seeing from you. We don't see anybody in the podcast. Perfect perfect conclusion to a perfectly executed podcast. Thank you.